You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll continue our walk through the Gospel of John. I couldn't help but notice in that song, he's got the wind and the rain in his hands after last night. Praise God that he does. We'll pick up where we left off last week. You'll recall we looked at the first verse of John 18. And we considered this brook at Kidron that Jesus crossed into the Garden of Gethsemane and how that was related to us as we look at what He went there to do. And Christ going into Gethsemane, facing the wrath of God, coming to terms in His humanity with the cup of wrath that He drank for us, and how those things really impacted the way we think about these truths. And this week we'll pick up in verse 2. And I'll ask you at this time, if you're able, to stand with me and we'll read verses 2 through 11 together. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, I praise You for Your Word. I thank You for Your Son. And we ask, O God, that You would attend unto us now by Your Spirit. O Father, we rejoice as we work through this record, this glorious record of the life and ministry of Your Son, Jesus Christ, to see Him marching boldly forward, to accomplish all that you gave him to do. Father, I ask that as we look into your word now, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us ears to hear and a right understanding of truth. Oh, Father, guard me for misunderstanding and misrepresenting you. Close my mouth where I would misspeak. And I pray, oh God, with everything that is in me, that you would open it. And grant boldness and authority and clarity in our hearts. Produce conviction in us that will make us 
immovable and unshakable. Help us, O God, to see your son as he's revealed in your word. O God, I pray that as we see him, our love and our affections for him would be kindled as well. Father, meet with us now. We entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll begin by looking at verse 2, and I'm going to try to work speedily through our verses today to some degree. And so um, if you would like anything from the notes as far as reference verses, feel free to ask me afterwards. I'm going to try to move quickly, though, to cover these verses, these ten verses we'll look at together. Um, Beginning in verse 2, we see, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. I suppose before we begin in verse 2, I will tell you the title of this sermon is The Lion and the Lamb. Considering and looking together at who Jesus really is, and who he is most essentially as the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And in our text, we're going to see these two realities of Jesus, the lion, the one with all strength and power and authority, as well as the lamb and humility and meekness who gave his life for the sins of the world. With that in mind, verse two says, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. This is the first time that the disciples have seen Judas since he went out from them. You remember how at the time when Judas went out, none of the disciples knew who it was that was going to betray Jesus. Quickly, you can turn back or just listen to the account from John 13 and think about this as we look at Judas in our text today. Verse 21 of John 13, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So since that point there, after Jesus has identified Judas to us, the reader, and yet the disciples are unaware that Judas was the one to betray him, these eleven had not seen Judas since that point. This is the first time Judas has come back onto the scene. And those who are merely pretending to follow Christ, even as we see in Judas' case, and yet have never been converted, they've never been born again, this is what we see in Judas that those types of people will often blend in with other believers until the moment of crisis comes. That's what's portrayed in our text. This is the turning point we've been looking toward. Up until now, all things throughout John's gospel are leading us to this point where they come to arrest Jesus. 
And at this point of crisis is when Judas is made known to them. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. You know, something that's interesting, history always testifies against those who stand against God. You understand my meaning? One time Jesus talks about those who start to build a tower or a house and then they realize into the building project they don't have money to complete it. And then they're known, they're scoffed at, they're mocked by everyone. Well, is that not true what we see of Judas? Have you heard in any relevant theme in your life today, have you ever heard of someone referred to as a Judas? Even amongst secular-minded people, they know what it means if you call them a Judas. That they've betrayed you, stabbed you in the back, that they failed to finish the race. I argue that history always testifies against those who stand against God. And though they may for a season prosper, as Judas does for a very short while, he enjoyed his 30 pieces of silver for a very short while, didn't he? But their sin will ultimately be exposed. And their destiny is a maggot-ridden noose around their necks. You recall that from the life of Judas after he's come under great remorse, not true conviction, but he's sorrowful over his betrayal of the Lord. And he goes and finds this rope around a dead donkey and hangs himself with it. That is the end of those who stand against Christ. And I'm saying all this in the beginning because it's going to be relevant as we look through our text today. And my question from the get go is this. To those who are prepared to claim Jesus now, you say, I trust in Christ now. Are you prepared to stand with him in the moment of crisis? Whenever the crowds come against him, when his arrest and betrayal happens, when he goes to the cross, when the world turns against Jesus and remaining faithful to him becomes costly, are you going to stand with him? Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. The next thing I want to consider with you is the impact we see of Jesus' life and ministry here. This is fascinating to me. Notice how it says that Judas knew this place. He knew the place. And the reason he knew this place, why was it? The text says, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. That's why he knew. Evidently, Jesus went to this garden Often in order to pray and seek God and to minister to the disciples while he was there. Now pause for a moment and just think about this. How much impact having consistently seeking God. If you consistently seek God, how much impact that has on those around you. That's essentially what we're seeing here. I know it's not the primary focus of John in our text, but that's included in this. Just think about it. Judas knew, where am I likely to find the Lord tonight? Evidently, he's not told them already that that's where he's going to be. But Judas knew where to look. Why was that? Because of the consistent testimony of Christ's faithfulness in seeking to serve God and instruct his people. When the watching world, and this application comes close to home for all of us, when those who see us, including unbelievers in your life, but also your spouse, or your children, whenever they observe you and they see you seeking and serving God, it is a loud testimony to them 
by the surpassing value of God to you. When they see you, when they can predict when and where they're going to find you seeking God. Now that's, if I'm honest, quite challenging to myself. I wonder, do my wife, my children, my friends and my family and those around me, sure they may know, yeah, he's the pastor or preacher. But do they know if they were to observe my life with any regularity, where they would find me with my face before God in prayer? Do they know where they would find me constantly? If somebody said, where am I going to find Kelly Ginger or Bruce Swihart? Where am I going to look for them? Well, they immediately begin to think in their minds where you go to worship your God. The, the part, patterns of your life that reflect a life live unto God. What does the evidence of your life say to those around you? Does it reveal one true passion, one true priority? Or are there competing desires that outweigh this one passion? My point is this early on, never underestimate the value and influence of a life lived unto God and the way in which that's going to impact those who see you. Now, I've got to say this. I'm not telling you, I'm not charging you to live merely in order to be seen by others. If you take this point being demonstrated in the life of Christ, that Judas knew where to find them because of Christ's consistent faithfulness in prayer if you take that and say, OK, I want to live in a way so that everyone around me thinks they're a righteous person, they're a holy person. That's not the point at all. But a fair evaluation of what your life is centered around ought to cause you to look into your own heart and ask, what is causing me to live as if other things are a greater priority than Christ? In other words, if you look and you see your life and you see if someone's looking at me, is there any consistency and faithfulness in my life that they would look at and say, I know that person loves the Lord. And if you don't find those things expressed, then you ought to begin looking inward at your heart. We're told Judas knew the place because Jesus took his disciples there often. Verse 3 tells us that so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Here's the next thing we begin to see is the links that people will go in order to be opposed to Christ or to capture, destroy, enslave Christ. And I wonder about this. When you imagine this scene where Jesus is arrested, and many of us, maybe you have, if you were to picture this scene of Jesus' arrest in your mind, would you imagine perhaps Judas and a few priests, Pharisees, and then maybe a handful of ragtag soldiers come to capture them? The reality is this, that a band of soldiers would have been anywhere between 500 and 1,000 trained armed men. Get the picture in your mind. Here Jesus is meeting. Jesus, this peaceful teacher, is meeting with His 11 followers. And here comes up to a thousand people to capture this one man and His 11 followers. And they've got it specifically tells us these lanterns, torches, and weapons. There's an emphasis here. And these people no doubt knew of the reports of Jesus' miracles. 
And how many times have we seen in John, they come to capture Jesus and they return saying, no one ever spoke like this man. Or they go to capture him another time and he disappears miraculously from the crowd. They don't know where he went. And he reappears walking on water or across the other side of the sea eventually. Jesus disappearing before people. No doubt these things have spread. Supernatural things around the life of this man. And so they come prepared, at least as prepared as they thought would be appropriate to capture him. Now think about this. You can almost imagine Judas as he's going, as he's selling Jesus out to the priests. You can imagine all of a sudden they get some of the temple guards and some of the priests. And they go and a soldier comes and they start tallying up the number of soldiers they're going to take to go and, and arrest Jesus. And you can almost imagine Judas, who, who witnessed so much, saying, fellas, it's not enough. It's not enough until it got up to 500 and even maybe a thousand men. And the sad reality that still was not nearly enough. Now, there's something pictured in this large company coming after Jesus that we need to take note of. You see, people like this will often tally their forces, add up their armies against Christ, expecting that they too will prevail against him. Think about this. Here's the picture. You have 500 to 1,000 trained armed soldiers coming to capture and arrest this one man with his 11 weak and pathetic followers on the whole. They don't have any chance of conquering these odds. And that's exactly what people do today. Consider this, the atheists, how do they do this? Well, they'll bring and circle together their collective wagons of supposed scientific understanding against Jesus. You can't believe the words of Christ. You can't believe miracles. Why not? Well, because our understanding. And if you challenge what they say with the scriptures, well, they'll go find another and another and another voice that agrees with them, that touts their same theories and ideas. Even as we heard this morning, they're going to block out the sun, they think. Well, good luck, fellas. No, you're not. But they assume, and we sometimes are inclined to do the same, that if I can get enough voices that will go together with my own voice, and I can snuff out and silence that which is after my own conscience. The moralists, that's what the atheists do. The moralists and the legalists, they tally their own righteousness as if it might somehow stand against his pronouncement of judgment against them. Instead of gathering an army of soldiers, they're checking their boxes and they're adding things up. Those religions that think they're going to be accepted by God by their good outweighing their bad. They think if I count enough good things on the list, these are what are going to add up. And stop the judgment which is coming against me. And one other we could consider is the relativists. Those who deny objective truth. All roads lead to God, they say. They combine all their joint denials of the biblical record. And they raise them against Christ as though they might redefine Him. They'll say, we'll tell you what love is. We'll tell you what's true about God, which God is worthy of our love and our affection. And one thing that ought to be glaringly obvious to us in this account, which is indicated, I believe, to us by the reference to these lanterns and torches, is that the greatest folly of any group, any gathering of people who are raised up against Christ, is that they are ignorant of the Christ that they're seeking. They're seeking Him in the dark. 
They're bringing lights. They're going after him in ignorance. It's dark where they're going. They don't know who he is. They hate him without a cause. And they seek him in pretense. Just for consider your consideration from Psalm 2. Psalm number 2. This is the end of those who rally in this way against the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here's the question. Here's the, the chief question we ought to be asking is this. Who is Jesus Christ? That's why the sermon's titled The Lion and the Lamb. That almost every issue that arises within professing Christianity or denominational divides comes down to this question. Who is Jesus Christ? Who has He revealed Himself to be in your Bible? And the question is, do you really know Him? Do you understand who He is in the Word of God? Have you yourself kissed the Son in His wrath? And let me warn you with this. Profound realization struck me. We're seeing these Jewish priests and Pharisees partnering together with Roman soldiers to come and capture Jesus. The kings of the earth who have nothing in common setting themselves against the Lord and His anointed. And this reference kissed the Son in His wrath. And then it just struck me. Judas did. You know what that tells me? Just because you kissed the Son does not mean that you're not betraying Him. And I suggest to you there will be many people who will say, I kissed the Son. And yet their kiss was a betrayal. They didn't come to Him as He's revealed in the Word. They came seeking to use Him, to gain something by Him. My question is, what grounds are you seeking Him today? Verse 4 goes on and we read, Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Take notice of the boldness of Jesus Christ in this text. He meets them in stride as they're coming toward him. He doesn't even wait for them to ask the question. He meets them and he puts his finger right on the pulse of what their evil hearts had conspired against him. He stops them as they're coming who are you seeking? But also consider this. John makes reference to the fact that Jesus knew 
all that would happen to him. Now, I believe it's fair and right in light of the text and everything we've seen up until this point in John that we conclude that Jesus' awareness of all that would happen to him did not begin at this moment. Jesus is not there in the garden with the eleven. All of a sudden, he sees these soldiers coming and he puts it all together. Okay, I know what's about to happen. John is saying, no, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, as the Son of God, knew all that would happen to him. This is why he came. Jesus, in light of all that he knew. Now, why do I mention that? Well, everything that's about to follow in John's gospel is according to God's sovereign purpose in Christ's life. This is very, very important. There's so much application, but let me give you at least one application. It's the same application that the disciples come to in Acts chapter 4. There they are, preaching the gospel, going around, seeing miracles performed. And then Peter and John are arrested, threatened. Don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. They're released. They go back to the rest of the believers and they tell them what all happened. What's their response? It says they lift their voices together and they cry out, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Here's the point. They saw and they actually referenced Psalm 2 there, the the kings of the earth coming together against the Lord. And this is their conclusion. That if it was the purpose of God Almighty, the sovereign God, who's in control of all things, that Jesus suffer and die, why would we expect that we would receive better treatment than Him? And they don't even ask for God to deliver them from the suffering, from the imprisonment, from death. They ask for boldness. Now, here's the application in this. Jesus knew all things that would happen to him. And in light of his knowledge and agreement with the father's purpose for his life, he not only has entered this garden, but is seeking to fulfill everything that is coming to pass. You see, this is why it's so crucial that when we read from Gethsemane, Let this cup pass from me that we not see Jesus trying to buck the will of the Father, but coming to fulfill it. Consider the parallel of this scene. To get the context, consider the parallel from the life of Daniel. Daniel in chapter 6 and verse 10. Now you know what's going on here in Daniel. This is the point in Daniel's life whenever um, the edict has gone out that these wicked people... There were seeking to basically get Daniel in trouble. And so they get Darius to make this edict about not bowing down and worshiping other gods. And they really conspire against him. Really, they they persuade and deceive Darius. And they make this edict about what's not appropriate as worship. And verse 10 says this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now think about this for a minute. Here's Daniel fully aware that there's an edict that anyone who does the thing that he's doing is going to be in prison. They're going to face the judgment of the king. He goes even as he always had. Even as he always had. Here's Jesus knowing what's going to happen to him. Marching into this garden. Bowing down and praying to the Father. Knowing what's going to happen to him. Knowing that Judas knew where to find him. 
but going openly with his face steadfast to Jerusalem to go and suffer in this way. You see, both Daniel and the Lord Jesus lived in faithfulness and obedience to God, fully aware of the consequences that would result from their actions. Daniel, obviously, in a lesser way, and Jesus, in an ultimate way, demonstrate to us what it means to entrust ourselves completely unto God as we seek to live for Him. Realizing the opportunity that we have to be faithful in our commitments unto God and trusting ourselves to Him. And so Jesus asks them as they approach, Whom do you seek? That's an apt question. When I relate to you, whom do you seek? Whom are you seeking after here today? Who have you come to hear from? I surely hope that it's not me. Who have you come to enjoy the presence of? Who do you expect to meet with here today? Well, they say, verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. <clears throat> you see, their answer here, Jesus says, whom do you seek? Their answer is revealing to us. It reveals the error of their entire approach. Now, this is significant. It's not wrong to refer to Jesus Christ as Jesus of Nazareth. It's not wrong to refer to him that way. It's a true description of him. But in the context, it's emphasizing Jesus as a man only. You see, the problem with so many people today and the reason that there are many who are not converted, they don't know Christ, is because they're only prepared to deal with Jesus the man. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the one who's maybe a very good man, and perhaps they value Jesus' teaching on mercy and kindness, or they'll twist His teaching to promote some kind of social justice that denies God's justice. And some people are even prepared to admit that Jesus the man lived a superior life and they might compare him with Buddha or with the Gandhi, but they stopped there. These soldiers, these Pharisees, they saw him as only the man Jesus. As a matter of fact, I can say that on authority because the very reason they're seeking to arrest him as a blasphemer was for making himself equal with God. So they come looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the one who's only a man, born of Mary and Joseph, the one who's not God. That's their answer. Well, what does he say? Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, I mentioned before, that's a true description of Jesus. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He owns it. He says, yeah, that's me. I am he. But as we're about to find out. He was much more than that. In the final part of verse 5, we read this. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, at this point, you've got to wonder what was going through the minds of the rest of the disciples. Surely. They see Judas, here he is. These soldiers coming to arrest the Lord. Judas is standing with them, John tells us. What do you suppose these other disciples are thinking as they look at Judas standing against the Lord? We already know that they weren't expecting Judas to be the one to betray him, which is mind-blowing. We considered this a while ago. It's mind-blowing that Jesus says clearly, the one I give the bread to, the morsel to, he's the betrayer. He gives the bread, the morsel to Judas, and then he looks at him and says, what you have to do, do quickly. And they assume, well... 
He's going to buy food or he's going to go help the poor. Completely oblivious to who Judas was as the betrayer. And here they see him standing before the Lord. Here's my question. Do you suppose that on the last day you're going to be surprised to find that there were many people that you knew perhaps who you thought were well-saved Christians who loved Christ and you find out that they too were betrayers, that they were enemies of Christ all along. It's a sobering thing to consider. And I don't rejoice in the idea that there may be those who say they love Him now that don't in the long run. But we must ask it in light of texts like these. And more importantly than those people you might know who will end up to be false in the end, could it be that you yourself may be one whom everyone in your life says they love Christ and even when all the evidence says you're false, they say there's no way. It couldn't, it's not possible that they don't really love Him even as they did of Judas. See, the question to ask is not, do I accept, agree with, allow, or acknowledge Christ? It's very misleading language that goes on in Christendom today, Christianity. Do you accept Jesus? Have you received Christ? Do you agree with the Gospel Are you going to allow God to fill up your life and make you happy? None of those are the right question. The real question is, are you standing with Him? Consider this. I've mentioned recently in some sermons from Exodus 32, the making of the golden calf. In verse 26, there's this glorious question put to the people. After they've been found out in their horrible, horrible sin and rebellion to God, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Here we're reading of Judas who betrayed him that he was standing with him. Are you going to be found standing with Christ or standing with his enemies? Who is on the Lord's side? That is the question. Verse 6, when Jesus, then, when Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, hopefully you'll begin to see how this relates to what I assert, that when they say Jesus of Nazareth, that they're saying only the man. See how that's contrasted with what happens here. He says, I am He. And they drew back and fell to the ground. It's almost humorous in one one light, although not really, as if to directly challenge their false understanding of Jesus only being a man. Jesus here thunders forth a mighty demonstration of who he really was. Now you need to understand something. This is often the case when Jesus speaks, especially in John's gospel. Your Bible in the ESV and other translations says when Jesus said to them, I am he. The word he there is not in the original language. It's added. It's understood. It's it's assumed that it's there. But actually what he said was when Jesus said to them, ego a me. When Jesus said to them, I am. When Jesus said to them, God Almighty, everlasting God, Yahweh. That's what Jesus is saying to them. What's the result of this proclamation? They say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Proclaiming Himself to be God to them. What a contrast. That's what He's saying. In other words, and this is where we begin to see this reference to Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And here He is roaring before them. 
And the impact of his roar is that they're thrown to the ground. Consider this. In light of these things, I found this an interesting scripture from Psalm 50, verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Isn't that interesting? They come to Jesus. They're looking. They're seeking after Jesus, the man. They think Jesus is just like themselves. And they're rebuked. They're charged. The matter is clarified before them as they're thrown to the ground. Let me suggest to you the folly of many people today is to assume that God is like them. He's nothing more than a man. And even someone here today right now in a bit of skepticism and doubt, hold Jesus in contempt. You look at God and His sovereign rule over the universe, and maybe perhaps you're thinking, I, I don't really agree with what God's done here or there. You might hold Him in contempt, as though you might do better. To imagine that God is limited by the same weakness as you are, or to not be able to imagine a God in the heavens who's not bound by the same limitations as a man. And you'll hear this today. People talk arrogantly in this way. Common phrases they'll use about God is they'll say the man upstairs. Basically, God's my equal. He's just like me, but he's upstairs. He's basically running things exactly like I would. And anytime something happens that's not like I would want it to happen, all of a sudden God's not sovereign, man's sovereign, and it's man's will who caused that. As though God had no power over the will of man. And the truth is, as we're seeing in this account here, they're going to be silenced. Every mouth will be stopped. And you too, if you're opposed to God as He's revealed in this book, will be thrown on your back by this pronouncement, I am a clear indication of Christ and His deity. Verse 7. They've been thrown to the ground whenever he says this. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it always amazes me in this telling that these people are not disintegrated into powder, that they're not completely destroyed and obliterated. Here you have the God of the universe with limitless strength at his disposal, and he proclaims his name, I am, and they're just thrown on their backs. How is there anything left of them after this? All I can say is that he must have intentionally for a moment veiled the power of his name, at least a little bit, to prevent them from being destroyed. And then here in verse 7, we see he gives them an opportunity to answer again. He could have destroyed them. And you know what's almost as incredible as the fact that Jesus didn't annihilate them right then and there? What's almost as incredible as that is that these people, as soon as they're able to stand up again, continue their commitment to capture them. Does that strike you as odd? Imagine this. Imagine being Judas or one of these soldiers at this moment. And you've just been thrown into the dust by two words from a man you already know has performed mighty miracles and two words throw you to the ground. And the moment you stand up, you continue trying to arrest him. What foolishness. 
What insanity this must be. And it, it testifies to us something of the madness and the blindness of unbelief. God has been so merciful to so many people that we almost take for granted and assume the fact that people are not more hardened than they are. If a person says nice things about God, we don't realize how darkened man's mind is in sin. Another illustration of this we've thought of in the past from uh, the Old Testament is a picture from Genesis demonstrated in the men at Sodom there whenever basically the angels come to deliver Lot out of the city. And you'll recall these men of Sodom seeking to sleep with, to have sexual relations with these beautiful angels. They're struck blind and it says they continue groping after the door. They love their sin so much, they're struck blind. These people love their sin. They're so opposed to God that though they're thrown to the ground, they get up and keep coming after Him. This once and for all ought to tell us that sin will never be overturned by evidence or observation without the Spirit of God. If people can be forcibly thrown to the ground and continue in their rebellion to God, that ought to tell you God Himself must do a work in them if they are to be changed. Verse 8, Jesus answers, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. Now here we begin to see a shift in the narrative. The first part we're seeing Jesus the Lion. Jesus the One with strength. Jesus all power. Jesus the I Am. Jesus the One who's not only a man. And here, Jesus prevents them from being cast to the ground the second time. I've told you before, my favorite definition of meekness is strength under control. Here you have Jesus, the One with all strength, and he uses the exact same expression that I am. And yet, they're not thrown to the ground this time. The God of the universe who has all power and authority is subjecting himself to the judgment of wicked men. Now recall back to what we saw in Gethsemane. Jesus, having wrestled through the night in prayer, fully realizing the horrific sentence that's awaiting him, his heart is set upon the will of the Father. His heart is set upon the protection and substitution for His people. Essentially, Jesus is saying to us here, though He has all power, He says, take Me, I'm the one you're looking for, and let these of Mine go. Take Me, not them. Now, is this what you expect Jesus to do here? If you were to be in his exact situation, suppose you had all strength, all power, nothing to stop you, no limitations on what you could do. Do you suppose that you would be compelled to restrain yourself while you're facing the wrath of God? Jesus, the one with limitless power, this is going to be incredible as we behold him in the months to come dying in agony on the cross. How is it that he was able to contain all of this strength and limitless power as he suffered under the wrath of God and the destruction of his flesh? Well, let there be no illusions here. The only possible way that they could arrest Him was if He allowed them to. You know, there was a, one of the newer 
Superman films in recent years, there's a scene where they, Superman essentially, he turns himself in and the government's got him and they show him walking in handcuffs. So how stupid is that? He can rip those things apart in nothing. Now, Superman is a weak speck of nothing in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of God Almighty submitting Himself to the point of death. We heard in the Sunday school from John 10 verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And we don't quite grasp the significance of Christ's humiliation. You know why that is? Because we don't quite grasp the heights that He has descended from. We don't see Him as He is at the Father's side in all His glory and majesty. If we did, perhaps we might begin to appreciate a little bit more what it means that He came all the way down, even to death. But here's the point. And our text makes it plain. They could not have done this to Him unless He allowed it to happen. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Then in verse 9, we see that this was to fulfill the word that He had spoken. Of those whom You gave me, I have not lost, I have lost not one. Of those whom You gave me, I have lost not one. Now we saw this last week. This is a clear fulfillment of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. You remember back from that prayer, He says, Father, those You've given Me, I've kept them in Your name. And now, Father, keep them. You keep them. Well, demonstrated in our text is a very physical and practical expression of an eternal reality for all of Christ's sheep. When Jesus says... Of those whom you gave me, I have, not, I have lost not one. That's not only talking about their protection from death. It's foreshadowing something greater. Here in our context, they're delivered from arrest. They're delivered from death in this context. But you know what? Every one of them, except for John, would die gruesome and horrific deaths for Christ. Did His protecting hand stop after that? No, He guarded them. Every one of them, all the way to the end. And that their souls were not lost. And embedded in this expression is a shadow of the gospel itself. You see on the surface, it looks like these disciples, they're being protected from physical arrest solely because Jesus substituted himself for them. He says, I am he. Come and take me. Leave these alone. And yet, in our text, they were not lost physically. But more importantly, Jesus is demonstrating His ability to keep us spiritually and eternally. It would be one thing if Jesus suffered the physical death we deserved and under agony and torment and proved He's got the power over all flesh. That would be one thing. But not only is He able to suffer the cruel hands of evil men in our place, as He's shown to do for the disciples here, but He's able to extinguish the wrath of God and all the powers of hell that are standing against us. That's what we're seeing. That's this fulfillment of the Word that He's spoken, demonstrated physically here. Verse 10 of John 18 says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
Now I suspect that the rest of this sermon dealing with verse 10 and then into verse 11, that there's not going to be very many laughing matters as we go along. So I want to get something somewhat humorous out of the way. It's interesting that Malchus' name is mentioned here. And I asked someone, talked to someone this week, a couple of people, and I asked, I wonder if Malchus was converted. Because if you read the other gospel accounts, Peter cut his ear off and the Lord put it back on. He was literally given an ear to hear. I thought that was somewhat funny. He's given an ear to hear and his name's mentioned. Well, interesting. But all joking aside, it's important that we see Peter here is demonstrating something for us. I mentioned earlier on, the first thing that people are wrong about Jesus is they, they don't see Him as God. They don't see Him as the I Am. It's only Jesus, the man from Nazareth. That's it. They err. Well, Peter demonstrates another error. Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. It's not hard to imagine where Peter's boldness comes from here. I mean, put yourself in Peter's shoes. You've just seen Jesus speak two words and the entire company of 500 to 1,000 trained soldiers, hardened men of battle are thrown to the ground. Peter says, we got this. No worries here. I'm going to go out and let's get going. Jesus started. He's already thrown them down. He's following Jesus' suit, Right? That's what this power's for, right? No. Peter's efforts were severely misplaced. Having seen this mighty display of God's power, Peter surely is imagining nothing could stop them from defeating these enemies. You know, this leads us into another common error I mentioned that people make today, continue to make with regards to Jesus Christ. You see, the first error, not seeing Jesus as God, leads to a host of errors. And there's no salvation, there's no eternal life if Jesus is not God. And yet today, there are many, and even genuine Christians who love God, who have fallen into such a terrible misunderstanding of the kingdom of God that they're trying to do exactly what Peter does here. They've come to see that He is God. God the Son. And then they begin to assume that His power and might are at their disposal, disposal to accomplish whatever carnal endeavors that they want to pursue. You know anybody like this? Are you perhaps like this? This comes in many shades, many varieties. You'll say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. And all of that power, all of that authority, you pray, you assume is afforded so that you might See a fulfillment of something in your life. How does this express itself? Just a few ways. There are those who claim healings which are never guaranteed. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's got the power over all flesh. He's the great physician. Surely He can heal me. I know that He can. And they claim it as though it were guaranteed for them when it never is. Others demand wealth and prosperity, financial riches. He does have the cattle on a thousand hills, brother. He owns all things. No wealth is beyond his grasp. I'm going to use the power of God to bless myself financially, materially. And still others believe that God's power is certainly available to them to vanquish evil in the land and bring about heaven on earth now. 
You need to know something. I praise God for every influence of His Word and the Gospel upon any society. And I praise God for the privileges that it's afforded us here. But all of these notions make the same error as Peter. They assume God's power is meant for their purposes rather than His. That God's power is going to employ my my results, the things I'm after. What does Jesus reveal to us is the purpose and aim of God as it relates to this mighty hand of power. What does Jesus intend to do with all of this limitless strength of the great I am? How is he going to employ this power? Verse 11 tells us how. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? That's a profound thought, isn't it? If there was ever an opportunity for the Lord Jesus Christ to stage a coup against Rome, his soldiers ready to fight. They're ready to die for him. They've told him so. He's got all power. It's right here. He says, put your sword away, Peter. That's not what my kingdom's about. Jesus was not a pacifist. And if you think he is, wait till he comes the second time. You'll find out that he's not. But his kingdom was not about a physical strength of arms demonstrated in some geopolitical force. It was the souls of individual people. That's what he's come for. To drink the cup the Father gave him. As we're going on to see towards the end of John chapter 18, you're going to see that Jesus tells Pilate, My kingdom... It's not from this world. If it were, my soldiers, my servants, they would fight. Peter's trying to fight for a kingdom of men. A kingdom of earth. A temporal, temporary kingdom. Jesus says, put it away, Peter. That's not what this power is meant to be primarily employed towards. It's the drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. That's this purpose. That's His kingdom. Jesus reveals both to Peter and to us... This is the focus of His kingdom. Now here's my question for you. As we move towards a close, would you enjoy the splendor and the majesty of this kingdom Jesus is dealing with and describing? Would you know it? If you would, let me suggest to you that you must come to grasp the glorious center of its praise. And this is where these things come perfectly together. The lion and the lamb in this way. No mere man has ever possessed the strength required to bring about this heavenly vision. This kingdom that Jesus is describing. This position, this place. No man can do it. No man in a fallen and sin and shamed by weakness could ever take the mass of humanity that's in sin and produce a glorious, sanctified, justified and forgiven people. No mere man could ever do that. Jesus Christ, His might is matchless. His strength is unending. And yet, this unending strength, this Lion of Judah, has come and veiled His strength in human frailty. What's the strength here? What's the strength? Some may say the greatest demonstration of of strength is limitless strength force and power being demonstrated in destruction. 
Well, if a great force of strength and power, if that's strong, how strong do you have to be to contain and hold that back? Do you see my point here? The strength of Jesus Christ perhaps is most greatly demonstrated through His meekness. Through Him allowing them to nail Him to that cross in His drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. And and you've got to realize this. This is Jesus' strength to you here today that though He is this lion, He drinks this wrath which is Above you. It's positioned above your head. If you're not a Christian. And he drinks this. Now get this picture. I keep going back to this lion. Now lions they roar. They use their teeth and their claws to tear through flesh. And this lion. He humbles himself as a lamb. The lamb of God. To bear the guilt of sinful men. And then he takes these destitute and defeated, weak and trembling sheep and transforms them into sons and daughters and joint heirs with him. I ask you this question in light of this text today. Here Jesus is fully committed to this betrayal this we heard of in the call to worship that my even my friends who've eaten bread with me, they've turned their heel against me. And he receives it upon himself in order to accomplish the work the father gave him to do. This is the question that remains as you see the betrayal of Judas, as you see his disciples whom he's standing for here, whom he would die for. Here's the question all the way back from Exodus. Who? Is on the Lord's side. Who will stand with him in victory? And who will surely die as his enemy? You know, I have to admit to you, and I'm wrapping up, but I have to confess something to you. I have a tendency to be quite an arrogant man when it comes to understanding. I get all this scripture and things in my head, and I think I know so much, so much of the time. And how often, and I believe this is true of us all, we come to this word of God and we see what's revealed in it. And we're trying to coordinate our systems and our ideas and conform what we find here to what we already think. And I tell you, One thing demonstrated in our thoughts today is this. We are those who must hitch our wagons to the Lord Himself. Who must say, whatever I may think, whatever may be right and true for me, this is the one, the only one. This is the one I'm going to trust. What He says, and more concerned about whether or not I'm submitted to Him and His will and His commands and His rule over my life, than anything that I might think going into it. To be humbly cast upon the mercy of God in Christ. And here's the final charge today. That you would be submitted to the Jesus. The one who is this one with all strength, all power, all authority. And then turns and uses all that strength 
to go and die and redeem a people for himself so that he can look at you and say, you're mine and I love you. And these things are in perfect agreement with the Father and the Spirit. I pray that as you look at Christ, as you see him in the coming weeks marching towards that horrible hill, that you would see one who loves you immeasurably. And that you would grow in your love for him. And if you don't know him, if you're not standing on the Lord's side, there is but one command to you. Repent, turn to him, cry out to mercy and find life in his name. If you do not, you will be cast to the ground, thrown on your back, humiliated and utterly destroyed by this lamb. I pray that this is an encouragement to your soul to know the links that the Lord Jesus has gone to for you. With that, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, I know that words can never express or clearly contain the depths of your great power and love. Every attempt of man, including me, is a destined failure. And yet, O oh God, your spirit, your mighty spirit is able to do far more than weak men. O oh Lord, stir our hearts, move our affections, shake us by your might that we might rest in you and never again be shaken. Father. Be pleased to do with us what you will for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.